Hello, dear listener. I'm watching another cat. So there's going to be a, a cat kind of like yeah. hanging out. Maybe meowing, maybe not. Who knows? This one's nicer and a little more desperate. Yeah. Um, but she'll, she'll exist. You may yeah. hear. But we're not talking about cats today. We're talking about movies that we watched. Also, this is a podcast. Okay, hold on. Notice. Okay, hold on. We're <laughs> gonna, okay, this sucks. Okay. Hi, welcome back, um, our listeners. Here we are. We talk about movies. Um, we're having an all right day, decent day. It's going to be a hot one. But before we talk about our big movie, Having Private Ryan, we're going to talk about little movies that we've seen uh, in the past, you know, two weeks. So uh, who wants to start? I'll go first. Oh, okay. I watched Asteroid City, the new Wes Anderson movie. Mm-hmm. It was fun. Is it his best? No, but it's a good time. The soundtrack was... <laughs> yeah, it was just a man dying. Just throwing it, throwing it out, throwing it out. So anyway, you were saying about Asteroid City. Yeah, it was it was fun. Yeah. Um, definitely a little bit kookier than I... I mean, okay, sometimes Wes Anderson movies are kooky. Yeah. But um, I don't know. It was Yeah, it was fun. No animals died. Normally an animal dies in his movies, but this one, the little Roadrunner thing was safe. What animal dies in... Isle of Dogs. Probably a dog. dog. Oh, probably. I watched a movie called Are We Not Cats? We are not. No. Um, yeah. So shout out to Issa for making me watch this movie. Thanks, Issa. It's basically about this poor, sad, pathetic excuse for a man. You? Think, yeah. Think of uh, train spotting oh. and me. And he goes. And he simps for this girl who likes eating hair. And he also kind of likes eating hair, but she is... She's got, like, pica? She's down bad with it. She's, like... She's got strands for... She looks like Gollum. She's eating so much of her own <laughs> hair. She wears a wig. Hot. Uh, and then they, they do sad, pathetic little dating things until she pretty much goes comatose because she's got, like... A massive fucking log of hair in her stomach because humans can't digest hair. So he has to do surgery on her to get it out. It's really fucking disgusting. And it's supposed to be like a romance gore kind of thing. The romance is, in my opinion, very bad because they're both just kind of shitty people. But it's a disgusting movie. Uh, Yeah, I can confidently say I will never watch that. That's fair. I watch, you know, I watch a lot of movies, a lot of good ones. I really do. I swear I watch good movies. But. The one we're going to talk about here today is a movie called Tiptoes. Let me just break it to you easy. There's no, there's no good way to say this. Gary Oldman plays a little person, and he shuffles around on his knees. It's got Peter Dinklage in it, and Matthew McConaughey plays Gary Oldman's twin brother? Yeah. Twin brother. Oh, yes. It, um, the original version of the movie was 150 minutes long, and it premiered at Harry Knowles' Butt Numathon. Mm. <laughs> that's real critical information what's wild about this is that we were watching it and i was watching in disbelief and then i was looking at the imdb trivia because of course i was mm. and it said that the 150 minute director's cut peter dinklage thought was really good yeah but then the producer saw the 150 minute cut and said Ugh. 
So then they fired the director and made like a 90 minute cut. Mm-hmm. And apparently that's the abomination. And I forget which other director it was that saw the director's um, cut and said it was really good. Okay. And I'm like, I want to see the director. The I would need 60 more minutes <laughs> Damn. of him shuffling around on his knees. I need to see it. The director who saw it thought it was good and was given the director's cut was Nicholas Wayne Reffin, who did Bronson. And he liked me for real drive. <laughs> you know what? I, I almost don't even want to give you more information. Just watch it. It's, Tell us what you think. It's on thoughts. Amazon Prime currently. And, uh, it is a wild what time. What a romp. All right. It had many jaw-dropping moments because I couldn't believe what I was watching. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what else is a fun little romp? Fun little romp for the whole family. A fun little romp yeah. through Europe? Saving? Private. Ryan. Hell yeah. Should we give you a summary? Yeah, you can give me a summary. I swear to God, you guys make this a good one. We're going to skip the part in the beginning where he's uh, you know, looking at the graves, even though by saying it, we obviously do not skip that part. But anyway... Uh, you have saved us no time. Yeah. Oh my God. Omaha Beach. Everyone is fucking dying. It's a bloodbath. It is insane. The, the water's running red with blood. Uh, our main man, he is Bill. No, he. What's his name? <laughs> Sorry, it's under. It's under pressure. What the fuck is the main guy's name? Are you name? talking about the actor or the, the actor? The actor. Tom, Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Hanks. Yes. Oh. Tom oh Hanks. God. Tom oh Hanks. Is, keep God. doing the fucking gunfire. Tom Hanks is trying to get to the head of the beach. He's uh, trying his best. A lot of people are dying around him. You see a man's fucking face cave in, but they inevitably do it. Now we find out that a man named uh, something Ryan. I can't remember. James his, Francis James, Ryan. James Francis Ryan from is, Iowa is dead. Uh, you can now make uh, typing noises. We're in the office of a lady. She's writing all the notes saying that your you know, son or husband or whatever is dead. And she realizes that all three are dead or three brothers in this family are dead and there's only one left. We need to get him the fuck out of there so that his mom can at least have something. So With Tom Hanks gets a bunch of guys and they set off to try to find uh, Private Ryan. They... Fucking some shenanigans happen. Shenanigans they, they go up happens. in the town. I forget yeah. the name. Vin Diesel dies. Yeah. So this section is a lot of just like men get picked off because it starts with a yeah. group of eight people. You watch them go to town. One of them dies. One of them goes to a uh, like there's a, like a bunker with a machine, machine gun on gun top. Nest, yeah. One of them dies. Uh, Mariah. Uh, yeah. So it kind of continues that way. And then at one point, um, Tom Hanks is like, oh, there's another little skirmish let's go do it um and another one dies troop is really unhappy because they're all dying it is really weird thinking back on it it really is them just being like, okay so it's essentially the beach then there's the rainy town where vin diesel dies then they go to a church and they spend the night and you learn some things about the characters then they go to the machine gun nest the character dies you learn some more things about the characters there's the bit where they run to the airborne and they're trying to find ryan and they're messing with dog tags like poker chips yeah, for a long movie, it's not. There's not. There's not a lot that happens, yeah. to be honest. Anyway, they finally get to. Uh, they find out from the Air Force uh, where Private Ryan is. Ramel. And so uh, they find out that it's this small group of uh, soldiers who are trying to hold this bridge, and so they get there, and Private Ryan, played by Matt Damon, is like, "Okay, but like, I'm not going to desert my brothers here. So you guys came up here for nothing. Sorry." Yeah. Um, and so then Tom Hanks and his lieutenant, I don't know what the, I'm really, I don't know what the ranking is. Tom Sizemore, that guy. 
Um, uh, Hovarth is the character's name. I yeah. Think. So he's like, I think we should stay and fight. And so they do. So then it's just this giant kind of battle mm-hmm. as they try to hold the bridge. And Thargent. He's a sergeant. Thargent, okay. Um, and then right at the tail end, uh, they're getting absolutely decimated and everybody's fucking dying. Mm-hmm. And then um, Tom Hanks is like, oh, I need to go blow the charge on the bridge. So he goes out, he gets shot. And right as he gets shot, backup comes. The end. We didn't touch a lot on this movie, but to be honest, we're not really going to be talking about the story too much, except towards the end. Honestly, watch this movie. Big movie. You should know it. Watch it. Um, the biggest thing to know about the story of this movie is kind of the dilemma of sending eight men to save one man and sort of the morality of that. And so as they go on their journey, they're all kind of pissed off because they're like, I can't believe I have to risk my life to save this one guy who, you know, just because his brothers died, blah, blah, blah. And so they're all grumpy and mean and. And another really important part about this whole story is the journey of Mr. Private Upham. Oh, the coward? The, the translator, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the coward? <laughs> yeah, that guy. But anyways, okay, there's a lot to talk about here. A lot of production, a lot of notes. So we're going to go quick. We probably won't derail. Probably not as many jokes and stuff, right? Just kind of want to get through the material. This is a, if you want a, an actual factual episode. Yeah, this is probably the one. All right, so this movie, okay, this movie's got really old origins. World War Two. Yeah, no, well, so <laughs> Spielberg went back in time to start World War Two, so of he course. could, uh, so he could make this yeah, movie. Yeah, he helped Hitler rise um, to power. Yeah, he actually went back to 1914. Oh, and he, saved Hitler? No, he he uh, shot. Uh, he like, actually didn't do anything. He just uh, he went to a sandwich shop, bought oh, a sandwich, okay. and that was all it took. Test trip. Yeah, no, apparently you don't need to do much. No, you silly head. That's not what happened. This movie doesn't start with Spielberg. It doesn't start with Hanks. It doesn't start with anybody in this movie, anyone big. It starts with producer Mark Gordon meeting a writer named Robert Rodat. And they were just like, hey, buddy, let's do a project hey, together sometime. Buddy. And they're like, okay, cool. Mr. Robert Rodat just read a book by author Stephen E. Ambrose. The book was D-Day, June 6th, 1944, The Climactic Battle of World War II. Long title. Stephen Ambrose also wrote another book called Band of Brothers E Company 506 oh. Regiment 101st Airborne from Normandy to Hitler's Eagle's Nest, which was made into an HBO series, yeah. which is also very, very good. Produced by? Tom Hanks. Produced really? by Tom Hanks. Yep. Band of Brothers came after Private Ryan, and it's very much just like a companion piece to Private Ryan. It's like shot the same way, a lot of the same I was, structure. I was thinking about it while watching Saving Private Ryan. I was like, this would... If you wanted a little taste of World War II content, watching Band of Brothers after this would be good. I mean, like I said, both of those are based on books by the same author. But the D-Day book would specifically mention the four Nyland brothers, who were real brothers who fought in World War II, where after two were killed and a third one presumed dead, um, the fourth brother was returned home under what is called the sole survivor policy, which is essentially if there's a sole survivor of brothers in a war, then they return home. Oh, I didn't know um, that. Yeah, that came about because of a couple instances where the Juno cruiser was sunk and five brothers died in that in that ship. Altogether. And they were like, yikes. Yeah. So um, maybe we shouldn't do that. Yikes. But also um, the Civil War, there was a lot of, because like all the units were like geographically based, mm-hmm. they just like pulled families. So there'd be like one battle, like 20 families would just lose all their sons. Damn. Which, which is, they mention in the yeah film, Abraham Lincoln talks about losing five brothers yeah which is why they read that letter um which you know just emphasize yeah that'd be horrific like you know in yeah, the movie there's sons. that bit where I know so I commented on that moment 
first of all, Stefan was like, do you think he likes John Ford? Because it was like a searcher's it, shot, like, like through a door. Shot for shot but, um, but, I'm, but I was like, yeah, the worst part is that she thinks that just one of her sons has died in that moment. Like, she's already come to grips with that, and that's hard enough. And then you know that, like, in 10 seconds, that guy's going to be like, so actually. It's three of your sons. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it is hard. And, you know, in the movie, too, they talk about, like, oh, why does Ryan get this treatment and I don't? It's like, I guess because he had more brothers than you. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like, I I wish they kind of went deeper into it. But, it like, yeah, it is really complex to be like, yeah, you got to risk your lives to save this guy because he had brothers and you don't. Because, yeah, I think of all the moms who lost their only child. Yeah. Like, you can't do anything about that. Uh, Robert Rodat wrote a script for a World War II thing based kind of on D-Day and all this based on, you know, the book that he read by Stephen Ambrose. And so Mark Gordon and Robert Rodat got together. They went to Paramount. And Paramount was like, yeah, this is good. So they hired Rodat, the writer, to write the script for the next 12 months. Oh, good Lord. Which, you know, all these times they were like, oh, John Hughes wrote this in two days on a weekend bender. No, this guy had 12 months to do it. I mean, seeing the scope of it. Yeah. And then it's like two, um, like going on three hours. Yeah, I can understand how it would take 12 months to like work on that and do the research and like make sure. Planes, trains, and automobiles was supposed to be very long too and that script didn't take 12 months no well i will say though with this script um i think one of the reasons the writing went on so long is because he was actively rewriting as they shot it too oh okay where they did a lot of things or they changed how it was going based on like the material they were getting and the way the actors were acting and blah 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 should also be known during this time mr mark gordon had a production company wildly inventive production company name called the mark gordon company he would mix with Classico Entertainment Production Company, which is founded by Gary Levinson. Okay. And together they would become the Mutual Film Company, and they would be the first production company on Saving Private Ryan. And so now at this point, you know, with Paramount on board, production company formed, they need a director. Guess who they considered? Um, you have three seconds. I don't know directors very well. Michael, Michael Bay. Oh. You know what? I thought about it. My, my head went Kubrick, then Michael Bay, and I didn't say it, and I wish Michael I Michael Bay almost directed this, but he left because he, he purportedly said he didn't know how to approach the material, which, thank Good God. Good for him. Yeah. yeah. I, apparently, though, also just side note, Michael Bay also turned down Black Hawk Down for a similar reason, uh, which, again, <laughs> thank God, and um, he also turned down the first movie given to him was Small Soldiers, because <laughs> I guess he thought he was better than Small Soldiers. Are they making another one? I haven't read anything, but I think I can feel it like in my soul spirit. But anyways, during this director hunt, Michael Bay and blah, blah, blah. Tom Hanks was given the script by his agency. And uh, Hanks was like, this is great. It's hooked. I'm in. I want to be part of it. So he met with the producers, Gordon Levinson. And then Hanks gave it to Spielberg. Spielberg and Hanks are like, oh, we've always wanted to work together. Apparently, they were like really close buds. Like they would go to family, get together as barbecues. Like they're really good friends and they really wanted to work together. But they also, hadn't worked together at all before? I don't think so. But also oh, they yeah, were kind of like, I don't want to like jeopardize our friendship by working together, working together right. in case it doesn't like happen. They didn't have a single disagreement on set. Like oh, they shit. were just the same frequency all the way. You damn, you can't ask for anything better no. than that. I mean, but then again, if they were already really good friends going in, yeah. like chances are they would have. But still, if you, you never Mariah know, went into something, no doubt, eventually. <laughs> Fists would be thrown. Oh yeah, I get the <laughs> shit kicked out of me. Mm. I go more. It needs more. It needs more fart jokes, and then uh, I would have a foot up my ass. Yeah, Spielberg came on the project not just for Hanks, but because he always sort of had like a permanent interest in World War II, and you can see it in his work, like Indiana Jones, 
1941, which yeah. is Divine Comedy. And Schindler's List, you know, mm-hmm. like a lot of his movies are either about the war or kind of take place around the same time of the war. So like this was kind of right up his alley. And even as a kid, you can find footage of him and his friends as kids making war films. Oh. And it's really fun and cute because they would, they would do things where they'd like bury a shovel in dirt. And then when a kid ran past, he'd step on it. So it would kick up there behind him like a bomb oh. went off. So they do a lot of like... That's really cool. That's really that's, fun, yeah. sneaky, cool things. And... The other big reason he did this movie is because his dad was a veteran. And when he was little, his dad his dad took like 60 millimeter film when he was, you know, overseas serving. And he brought it back and he'd show his son and talk about the war and blah, blah, blah. So a lot of this movie was a tribute to old papa. Listen to um, little Spielberg. Uh, this footage here is me scalping a Nazi. <laughs> As you can see, he's screaming, asking me to Nazi. stop, but I don't. Gorlami. <laughs> so at this point, we've got Hanks and Spielberg. Big W for the producer boys. Not really, actually. Because Spielberg attracted DreamWorks because if you remember, Spielberg co-founded DreamWorks. Yeah. Which this also brings on Amblin Entertainment, which is Spielberg's production company, mm-hmm. which he also co-founded, of course. And so DreamWorks and then Paramount were brought on. They were they sort of decided to co-finance the movie and co-produce it. And they settled on about $65 million for this movie. 65 milli? 65 milli, but they needed to figure out who's going to distribute the movie where, right? Who gets North American distribution rights? Who gets international distribution rights? You know how they did it? Coin toss. Coin toss. Ah. Spielberg did a Spielberg did a coin toss. Yeah. The most of ever lost in distribution rights. <laughs> um, so DreamWorks won. Call it. And uh, so they got North America and Paramount got international. Rundo. Unfortunately, with, you know, the monolith Spielberg and Amblin Entertainment moving in, this meant that our non-financing mutual film company, Gordon and Levinson, would uh, not be making a whole lot of creative decisions on this project. In fact, they would not be making any creative decisions on this project. They got a one-time payment, and they were able to keep their names in the credits. Ooh. And uh, Levinson said on the matter, he was like, you just know going in what the score is. I guess it's unspoken that when you hire Spielberg, you're not going to be on set making decisions. Damn. And so then they hired another producer, Ian Bryce, to sort of replace them. Oof. Also, Ian Bryce worked on Transformers with Michael oh, Bay. okay. And as we know, Spielberg is the executive producer of Transformers, so like a weird Michael Bay. When did this movie come out again? 98. 98. Yep. That, that's the beginning and the end of our producer boys who started this story and will not see it to the end, per se. Bama. 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 So, oh, yeah. Cleo, now. We got to get to the beach. (laughs) We've got to get to the beach, Cleo. We've got to get to the MG nest. (laughs) Oh, no, Cleo. The 88s are whacking us too high. My arm. (laughs) Cleo, where's my arm? Okay, so beginning of the story. Initially, Spielberg wanted this movie to be like sort of a boy's own adventure sort of thing. Very Goonies. Yeah, yeah, very, very sort of like classic Spielberg Goonies kind of thing. The original novel that this is based on, written by Stephen Ambrose, it is essentially just like a collection of a ton of different accounts and stories of like veterans. So it's not like a fictional telling of the events. It's like okay. a nonfiction like assembly yeah. of, of the events, according to people who lived it. Spielberg, when he started doing his research, he was like interviewing veterans and stuff. The veterans specifically he had a lot of veterans who like tell our story, don't make another Hollywood movie. And so he was kind of like, oh, maybe I should not do my... Goonies, World War II fan fiction. My little adventure movies. So then he was like, okay, you know what? Let's focus on 
the authenticity and sort of the accuracy of the events. And this is where paying homage to the veterans and things kind of starts coming into play. The script also needed a couple of rewrites. So Frank Darabont and Scott Frank were brought on. Two Franks and a bun. Frank Darabont, if you don't know, did Green Mile and Shawshank. Okay. And Scott Frank did Logan and Out of Sight. One of the guys from Out of Sight is in... Saving Private Ryan. Is in this movie. Yeah, I couldn't tell you the actor's name. He plays Jennifer Lopez's dad. Anyway. Anyways, <laughs> they did some rewrites of the script. We won't really go into it. Things like they follow the second wave of soldiers coming out of the beach. So that way, like, it's already sort of broken out. So we don't have to have that extra time there. Spielberg edited, like, anecdotes. Like, apparently, he went to a cemetery once and he saw, like, an old man fall to his knees at, like, a war cemetery, which is sad. And so he's like, oh, I'll use that. That's good material. Thanks for the inspo, um, buddy. Yeah. My friends are dead. Dane? They, oh, they did a lot of changes kind of as they were the filming. Beach. So they did bits where they would have like characters improv things in character or actors improv in character. Spielberg would kind of like take notes and then hand it off to the writer. And the writer would be like, okay, this is good. I'll expand here. Or I'll cut that, put that into the script. Now we can jump into casting real quick. We're not going to talk a lot about casting. I don't talk a lot about the actors. If you have questions about them, I might not be able to answer them because I don't care about the actors. <laughs> they decided they wanted to get primarily guys older than you. Like if they had to choose between older or younger, they wanted older because when you're in war, your face gets a little weathered and oh, it would be yeah. easier to buy like an older guy than a younger guy, I think was the rationale. We already have Tom Hanks. We know Tom Hanks. They like Tom Hanks because he was like a really strong kind of leader parent type. Also, marketability. <laughs> marketability. But they he wasn't wanted... big. Yeah. Back-to-back he Oscar winner. He was big. He wasn't like an acting hero type, and he wasn't gruff. And there was a quote where Spielberg was like, Tom Hanks not going to be pulling pins and grenades out with his teeth, and like trying to be machismo. Like mm-hmm. Hanks has, you know, a softer side to him that like other actors would probably try and like ham up. Yeah. Like, for instance, Mel Gibson was considered, yeah. which I could see that being a guy who would be like, Ah, trying to be as cool as possible who's uh who's rambo stallone yeah stallone or terminator arnold yeah bro i'm sorry (laughs) and uh harrison ford sometimes you astound me like (laughs) arnold and stallone like really i know the movies they were in and the names of their characters yeah you get that part you're right (sighs) he was in twins with uh, that's Danny DeVito. Oh, okay. Oh, He's got DeVito. I know Danny DeVito. He's my husband. You kn- Anyways, Harrison Ford is also considered for Hank's role, which also would have been an interesting oh. choice. I can see it. I think it. I could see it. I don't. It would have been different. Yeah, absolutely. I'm pretty sure you know Spielberg would have yeah. done it differently because he's a different yeah. actor. But Tom Hanks is such like also kind of a soft guy. I was gonna say I don't think Ford has the sensitivity. Yeah, that Hanks has. Yeah. Tom Sizemore, he was Sergeant Michael Hovarth. He was kind of like Tom Hanks' like right-hand guy of the squad. Um, Is he the one that throws the helmet, gets shot in the side, and then shot in the chest, and then... Yeah. I just got the wind knocked out of me, and then dies. Yeah. Yep, at the end of the movie, yep. He was originally cast in the movie The Thin Red Line, which is a World War II movie Never that heard of it. also came out in 1998. I love this movie. We'll, I'll try and talk about it more later. But he was going to be in that movie, which is a World War II movie taking place in the Pacific Theater. So a different part of World War II. And it's a very different movie. But anyways, he was going to be in that movie. And the Spielberg like gave him a better offer. And he's like, all right. Vin Diesel, who is Caparzo, he was like unknown at this time. He was working as a bouncer and a telemarketer. When oh, shit. He, when really? he got this what role. a combo. So the way he got it essentially was he was like funding his own indie films. 
and he made two movies. One of them, the most important one, was multifacial. So it was it was a movie about like an actor struggling to find roles and stuff, and that mm. screened at Cannes. And Spielberg saw that, and then he saw his other stuff, and he's like, oh. And I so I sort of saw that like Spielberg apparently kind of like wrote in his character just because he saw Vin Diesel and wanted to work with him. Interesting. He got cast, and he was paid like a hundred thousand dollars. All right. Matt Damon, Private Ryan. Um, so for Private Ryan, they wanted an unknown actor, and Spielberg was visiting a set of a movie a year before called, called Good, Good Will, Will Hunting. Hunting. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I've never heard of this guy. Look at these two dudes making this thing. You know, a little while later, he's like, you know what? He made such a good impression on me. I'm going to cast him. And then Goodwill Hunting came out and they're like, okay, he's no longer an unknown actor. <laughs> yeah. But whatever. I already like, I think he's good because he's gotten every boy face. He does. Matt Damon's got an every boy oh, face. Oh, he does. He does look like every boy. Yeah. He looks like every boy put into one. So they went with that. Also, Neil Patrick Harris and Edward Norton were considered for this role. Uh, Neil Patrick Harris. Yeah. It, okay, I could see Edward Norton. Yeah. Maybe Edward Norton how I met sense. your mother. Yeah, but I mean, he would have been young. At this I mean, point. he did like Doogie Howser, but like, yeah, yeah, no, I don't, I don't see that one. <laughs> kind of, I think you know, plucky young young guys. And then last, in a weird way, one of the more important castings of this movie was the War Department Colonel was played by a guy named Dale Dye. He's at the, after the D-Day scene when they're talking about the letter, he's got white hair. He's not reading the Abraham Lincoln letter. He's standing there with Cranston. He was an actual uh, Marine veteran and he served mainly as a consultant of this movie. He was kind of like the right-hand man of Spielberg when it came to like doing war stuff and the combat and blah, 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 blah. So Dye and Hanks got together one day and they decided it would be a good idea to send all the men of the main crew on a boot camp for six days in order to, you know, experience a little bit of what the soldiers go through. So this boot camp was overseen by Die himself and some other Marines, presumably Marines he knows. And it included five mile runs in gear, simulated battles, weapons training, three hours of sleep a night in cold and wet conditions. One thing was like, oh, they get fed British rations twice a day if they make me happy. <laughs> which like if you know this is this is like half of what a gamer goes through yeah. when he plays oh. call of duty so really they should have they should have made a made gotten gamers to do this because yeah. they would have nailed it yeah they would have done so much better at this they would have gone this um, is easy the training compared. a gamer has playing call of duty is far I'm above right that of know. any soldier they did this boot camp and generally speaking because they've done this for a lot of war movies and things i think this is a good idea Especially oh, yeah. for movies like this. Well, they need to know how to hold a gun. And... Because one aspect is you learn a lot about how you're supposed to talk, how you're supposed to hold yourself, how you're supposed to wear your gear, how you're supposed to hold a gun, blah, blah, blah. And also one thing was because they did like simulated battles and stuff, they're like, it prepared them for shooting this movie when they had 20,000 blank firing rifles and actual explosions going off like all the time. Like it was really good preparation for that. They did mock battles? Hmm? They did mock battles? Essentially play Call of Duty, but... In real life, you just go, bang, bang, I shot you, I shot you dead, I shot you. Yeah, um, you play Call of Duty. You play Call of Duty in real life. Apparently, when they were doing the boot camp, a lot of the actors wanted to quit because they were like, This is pointless, this is stupid, I want to do it. But true to his character, Hanks gave some rousing speech and he was like, You would regret it later and you would help your characters and stick with it, you know. And when you're old, you remember and glad, whatever, Tom Hanks. But the most important part of this, which Mariah knows and you, listener, may know is I don't Spielberg know. intentionally left the Matt Damon out of this training. 
because he wanted the other actors to kind of resent him oh, and like look shit. down on him for not doing it. Um, just a smidgen of social orchestration from Spielberg. I love when you put your actors through uh, emotional stress for fun. Okay, moving on. We're going to talk. We don't do this a lot. We're going to talk about the camera and cinematography and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I really want to focus on this for a moment. So it was shot. The director of photography, the DP, for those of you who don't know what DP is, is a guy named Janis Kaminsky. He worked with Spielberg previously on Schindler's List. They would essentially work together on like nearly every movie after this. Like the Fableman, Spielberg's most recent movie they worked on together. They're, they're best buds. They love working with each Homies. other. And so what happened is in 1997, Spielberg was shooting two movies. He was shooting Jurassic Park 2 and he was shooting a movie called Amistad. So he wasn't really present for a lot of the pre-production of this movie. So Kaminsky had a lot of time to himself to kind of figure out the aesthetic. Like he still worked with Spielberg. You kind of be like, oh, what about this and this and this? But like this was not Spielberg's full focus or sole focus at the time. Focus, focus. There's pizza on your focus. Uh, (laughs) You ever seen that? A guy drops a piece of pizza on a Ford Focus from like (laughs) five stories up. But anyways, he had a lot of time to sort of figure out what the aesthetic for this movie was. And as you can imagine, Spielberg, Kaminsky, their biggest influence was old war footage and propaganda and like combat photography, especially from Robert Kappa, which if you know, and Robert Kappa. Well, he's got the really famous D-Day photos. Yeah. So the ones are all like blurry and yeah, yeah, that's him. Yeah. Oh, they're going to have blurry shots. F, F in chat. <laughs> Lame. You, you could have hold the camera a little steady when you were getting shot at and coming off the landing gear. Oh, my gear. God. Uh, they used a lot of influence from that, and you can you can see it in the, uh, the cinematography. Yes. When Kaminsky, DP, and Spielberg were talking about how they want to do this movie, how they want to make it look, they originally thought to shoot it monochromatic like Schindler's List, which, if you've seen that, oh. is like black and white. Yeah. So they were like, oh, maybe we should do that. But they decided they wanted to kind of play with the color of the reds of the blood. So they instead did just sort of like desaturate the look of it. They did in a very interesting way. Uh, And you can see the color like fluctuate a Mm -hmm. lot in the movie. I don't know if you noticed it. Because so they did a couple of things. One of them was just post color correction, which wasn't even really color correction. They just essentially what they did is they processed the film multiple times. So it just became washed out. But one of the things they did is Kaminsky would like remove protective coating on lenses. They would always shoot in like cloudy gray weather to really just muddy all the colors. There's other things he would do. He would like mismatch lenses. They used really odd shutter speeds and angles. So that was cool. They shot on 35 millimeter film. It's called ENR film. It's it's a certain way it's made a different way. So essentially what happens is it retains more silver in the negative. Um, blah, blah, blah. What this does is it gives you more contrast, gives you richer shadows and sharper texture on things like metal and like clothing. Also, they shot this in, I don't know how to say this properly, but I never figured out how to say aspect ratios. 1.85. 1.85. That's like the common American widescreen cinematic format, which if you didn't know, that aspect ratio along with a couple others came about because in the 50s, uh movie attendance dropped down really low and they're like we need to get people back in the movies and uh so they came up with some new aspect ratios that were different from tv because they were like look this looks different than your tv and they're like oh okay <laughs> so then they went and saw movies revitalized film yeah it did all right and then obviously there's a lot of like camera shake and handheld camera movement slow frame rates slow frame rates the camera shake and the handheld is actually really important because for one they wanted to be very reactive 
So yes, there's like choreography, but they wanted the camera to be able to be like, rather than like really precise timing of explosion here, camera turns here at this point doing this, they wanted the camera to be able to freeform, react to things as it happens. Mm -hmm. So essentially what they did is they made their own war and then filmed it as if they were combat photographers. Great cinematic style that um, would redefine the war genre. Um, Real quick, I want to talk about Spielberg, Mariah, and this is especially for you, director, (gasps) because... As I mentioned before, he was working on two movies in 97 and kind of finishing up post-production. Yeesh. So he was very busy and he basically had no time to prep for this movie. And the way he solved that is he did not prep for this movie. Reportedly, there was no storyboards involved in this movie. No what? storyboards, no planning. He didn't even know what a lot of the sets looked like. He essentially would just kind of go and spontaneously figure things out as it happened. And he remarked that he thinks he works better this way. Because when he plans things out, he feels like he puts himself into a box right. where he's like, I need to make it look like the drawing or I need to make it look like the diagram and I want to put things here. And he feels like it you know, boxes in the possibilities of what he can do. So he liked this approach, especially with the thought of them trying to be like war photographers filming things. So he would just show up. Yeah, camera up there, camera here, over the shoulder here. Uh, let's do one here. And you just... This is what skill looks like. This is what... This yeah. is core inbred, not inbred, but... Uh- uh, <laughs> Whoa. What's the Whoa. What's like when you're like it's like purebred? He's good. He just has skill. He's Yeah. It's... So this is like it's hard because with film when we watch movies, we oftentimes are dealing with the permanent product like what comes at the end and we're judging kind of that part. A lot of, you know, a good director isn't necessarily what comes out in the end picture, but what's going on as it's being filmed. And Spielberg along with Scorsese, I've heard this said too, is what makes them so great is that they can figure things out kind of spontaneously. And if a problem comes up, they're able to just work around it and figure out a different solution. Um, And Spielberg on this movie, you know, safety is a big concern. So there's times where they're like, this shot isn't that safe. And so he'd be like, okay, let's not do it. Let's do something completely different. And he would find a solution. And like that, like quick thinking and just being able to balance everything all on your own is like what makes these guys incredible. In case you're ever like, Spielberg, what's the big deal? It's like, that's kind of the big deal. Yeah, he's incredible. The, The fact that they can process and do all this stuff spontaneously is insane but now we're getting into the cool stuff we're getting into pre-production we're getting into location scouting which was done and if you would have guessed they wanted to film on normandy beach because that's where this happened oh bruv you got a license for that you got a license for that you got you got a license for that camera you got a license for that military uniform that's not really what happened but yeah normandy beach as you can imagine has very strict filming protocols and procedures and it's kind of hard to blow up, you know, 20 megatons of explosives and stuff. And also... Oh, Norm- do you, you want to put a bomb in this historical site? Mm. Mm. How about... No. But also Normandy at this point had become kind of like modernized. So they're like, there's shots where there's like a power plant right there and like... Like in the back. Yeah, like, in the background and stuff. So they're like, we can't... Power Normandy just isn't shit. isn't viable. Where do you think they shot? New Zealand. No. Scotland in Ireland? Ireland, yes. They did the beach in Ireland. Yep. Good old Irish. Great Scott. D-Day beach scene was Ireland. Specifically, uh, they filmed... Okay. They filmed on Kirklow Beach. I'm sure that has some fun Irish pronunciation. Irish Gaelic, like... Kirklow. But anyways, so in Ireland, they had filmed Braveheart not too long ago. And so they were, like, kind of open to, like, filming and, like, war filming. So they're like, you know what? Yeah, come here. They built service roads for vehicles um, and the production designer, Thomas E. Sanders, got to work, you know, like carving up the landscape, building bunkers, building hedgehogs, barbed wire, etc. Now, Stefan, hedgehogs. 
What are you talking about? I pointed them out to Mariah. So hedgehogs, they're like, they're logs on the beach and they're standing up on a shorter log. So they kind of look like a, like an arrow kind of in the sand. The point of them was they had mines at the end uh-huh. and the Germans thought the military come in at high tide. And so the oh. ships are supposed to ride up on them and then explode. But they came in at low tide, so they were exposed and it worked. But also in the movie, they're facing the wrong direction. Oh. So factual in error. <laughs> Boom womp. Also, you should Fuck know. Fuck you, Steven Spielberg. When the flamethrower jetpack explodes, they didn't really do that. There's a lot of extras in the movie, so they need a lot of uniforms. So um, costume designer Joanna Johnston had to make. Well, okay. So they thought they'd be able to source a lot of uniforms because like. World War II. U.S. military loves U.S. military loves stuff. army surplus. You know, yeah. there's, they're in Europe where a lot of soldiers fought. Like, surely there's a lot of movie productions of World War II that happened. Surely it's not that hard to find uniforms. They can only find about one third the uniforms they needed for the movie. Oh, man. So, Joanna Johnston had to make about 3,500 uniforms. Jesus. For the soldiers. And so, what they did is they ended up, like, commissioning and purchasing things from other companies. They even got one company who made the actual military boots in World War II based in Minnesota. So they got oh, like shit. basically the same combat boots yeah. because it was like the same factory and everything. So Also, just real quick, I was like, Joanna Johnston, that sounds familiar to me. She's worked a lot with Zemeckis and Spielberg. Mm, She's done yeah. a lot of their mm-hmm. stuff. She won Oscar for this. Forrest Gump, Back to the Future, Indiana Jones, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yo. So we might have talked about her then. Mm-hmm. She's um, a boss-ass bitch. Now we're going into production. Finally. Principal photography began on June 27th, 1997. They shot up to 50 shots a day. Damn. That's a lot. Albeit they did have multiple cameras going Please? oftentimes. Oh, okay. But like, oh my that's God. not single cam. That's not single camera. Yeah. So for all the How? audience out there, for all the audience out there, the standard amount of shots to do in a day, Mariah, I mean, it can vary depending on what your setup is. and Yeah, it, depend- it depends on like lighting and how fast the shot number. is. Give me a number. Give me a number. Give me a number. I would say at least for what I've done, mm. you know, just like on a student level, it can vary from like 14 to like 22 is like really pushing it. Yeah. So he fucking more than doubled it. Yeah. 50 shots a day. They shot fast. They shot mostly in chronological order. And there was little to no rest. Like they were just going, going, going. And Spielberg kind of wanted this environment specifically for the actors because they're like, this is what war is. You're always on your feet. You're always stressed. You can't sit down and read 70 pages from a book waiting for the next shot. Like, you are you got to go. And so he kind of wanted that edge on the actors and that. Although the sad part about this, including the chronological order thing, is like when someone died, they left. They were gone. Oh. Which I guess is also good for the performance. But they're like, it would kind of mess up morale sometimes because it would be like, okay, bye. Like we, we went on this journey together and now you're gone. Damn, I feel like that out of everything else is probably the most helpful for the actors. Yeah, you you you, you would see that in performance, but again, it's like sad it that is you kind of have to orchestrate. Directing is, in a way, well, no, directing is just a very manipulative thing, but like, I don't know, we try to make it not sound bad. Bad manipulative. <laughs> <laughs> um, but okay. So here we go. The D-Day Beach was filmed over four weeks, and it cost about eleven to twelve million dollars. There yeah, was about I can see that. Fifteen hundred people involved. A thousand people were extras, and they were from Ireland's reserve forces. So oh. they were actually military personnel. 
they could be either 18 or 40 years of age of a thousand people doing this. And again, the good thing of doing that is they're soldiers. They know how to handle a weapon. They know how to carry gear. They know how to talk. And they were essentially die. That guy we talked about before, Mm -hmm. he like did a lot of the communication with them. And so the way the extras were essentially structured, just like military, like they had squads, they had a squad leader, the squad leader would report to die. And then that's how they coordinated everyone to do all the things they needed to do. So they they basically had a small army. They reported to die. That must have been scary. (laughs) (laughs) So with all of, but so everyone who, you know, like gets injured and shot and stuff like that, are those the reserve men or are those like just stunt performers that aren't Um, counted? I imagine it's a mix. Okay. Um, I mean, I I think for like the big stuff, that's definitely stunts, but like. I I didn't see anything specific about numbers on that. So yeah, there's about 1,500 people, 1,000 reserve forces. I think 100 or so were like specific like stunt and actors and stuff. And Mm -hmm. then like, yeah, 400 to like 500 crew were involved. But yeah, for a lot of the bigger ones, I believe it was like stunt actors. But I think for some of the smaller things, people yeah, falling I just over mean and, like in the background, yeah, you see, I'm sure that people is, just yeah. like getting shot and stuff and like hitting the ground hard. Mm-hmm. They also had like mannequins sometimes they'd use to to just fill space. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, I know one time they use the mannequin is the guy on the tank when he gets fucking blown up by the the yeah. uh, 22. Yeah, yeah, you see that one. Yeah, it took him about four weeks to do this. And the problem is when you have this many extras, that resetting a take can take like oh, half forever, a day. Yeah. To try and get everyone back into position to reset all the squids yeah. and all the, you know, special effects and everything. Crazy. Ooh. It's kind of a blessing because it's just sand. Yeah. So, like, they don't have to reset buildings. It's just sand and sand. You can, when it's a scene Wait for of the everything. waves to reset it. Yeah. Everything's being blown up. Like, you're not going to notice the continuity of sand being in a different pile than yeah. it was before. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, like we said, they had multiple cameras rolling. And they could generally get what they wanted in, like, three to four takes. How'd they make the sea red? Uh, I forget the number. I forgot to write it down. They used like a thousand gallons of blood or something throughout this whole movie. They used just a lot of fake blood. So they got the sea red by pouring a lot of fake blood into it. All right. Yeah. That's how they did it. Also, it should be important to note, they had just thousands of bl- actually like blank firing rifles. And the poor armorer who did this, <laughs> Simon Atherton, was like, yeah, my job was so stressful the whole day. I was just on edge all the time. Because you, you have to keep track of all of them. You know, they would need to hand the guns out. You need to monitor them as a thousand guys are running around shooting blank firing guns. You need to collect them. And at the end of the day, they, they would need to clear them and make sure there's no obstructions or anything in them. And then they need to clean all of them. So you had a huge crew. And he's like, I could only breathe easy at about like 10 p.m. once we had collected all the guns. And then my other half of the job would begin where we make sure they're all okay. Wow. And it's just like, yeah, that would be insane. But they got sand and seawater and yeah, all the, the sand, fucking... the seawater, the mud. It would be really easy for um, extru- obstructions to happen. And Which they actually say in the movie, like, yeah. keep yeah. your guns clear. Yeah. And they have them in, like, plastic bags and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, props on him. And, yeah, there was no serious injuries on the set besides, I didn't see a lot of info. Someone got their foot run over by a car. I think it was, like, a crew, me- it was like a crew member. Okay. So like that's very that's like incredibly yeah. impressive. That's very like not a part of filming though. That's kind of like yeah, yeah. Just so like, eh, in terms normal of the, day accident, just work site stuff. In terms of all the explosions, the blank fire guns, and the stunts, like really good. And like I said, Spielberg really emphasized safety. He would need to be convinced by like the stunt team and everyone that like something was safe before he would do it. And there is footage of him. You can see him behind scenes going, "Is this safe? Is this safe? If I do this, is this safe? Is this safe? Can I do this?" Gunshot. 
impacts. Some were squibs, some were air hose just in the sand. They just had buried air hoses that kind of like, you know, everywhere. They also did a lot of VFX bullet hits. Um, ILM worked on this. So a lot of blood, the blood Who? impact. And stuff. Industrial Light and Magic made, Industrial Light and Magic made by Steven, uh, not Steven Spielberg, uh, George Lucas. Yeah. It's weird. They didn't report a lot of how much they worked on this movie because I think, well, first of all, they did a lot of special effects. And ILM really did just kind of more of the supportive special effects, I think. Yeah. There's the one shot at the end of the D-Day beach where you get the wide of like all the battleships on the scene stuff. Mm-hmm. That's that's VFX. Yeah. But they didn't really, I think because they didn't want it to be like this come see these cool VFX kind of movie. So they like they that's, didn't that's promote it like that. Fair. Yeah. So there, there isn't a lot of information on ILM's involvement in this. But anyways, yeah, they had bunkers that needed to be flame-proofed, people that needed to be flame-proofed. Also, fun factual inaccuracy, there actually was not, like, any bunkers on D-Day on, on Normandy Beach. They had, like, two bunkers, and they were, like, observational bunkers. They weren't, like, machine gun nests. Oh, I didn't know they, that. So D-Day had really steep cliffs on Omaha Beach. That's what made it, like, so difficult for them to get up. And so the Germans were just sort of, like, hiding in the foliage and stuff. Oh. Hmm. So Spielberg did admit that sometimes you change things around for dramatic effect. All of this to say the great special effects of the actual physical effects meant that the actors didn't have to do a whole lot of pretending mm-hmm. uh, because there was just actual gunshots and explosions going off all the time. I forget. I think it was someone was talking about it. He's like, yeah, we started filming and I'm on the landing gear and the ramp comes down. And there's just red mist in my face and gunshots and all these explosions. And he was like, oh God, like I'm actually here. They had to yell. They had to do all the stuff they do that a soldier would do. So it was like, Really good supporting for your performances of actors when you just are in a war zone. And now it would just be like simulated environment with the yeah blue yeah. screen. People going die, 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 die. drop bang. that, drop that, bang, bang, bang. 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 Um, so. Do you know anything about them jumping into the water with all their gear? Yeah, um, I know. Oh my that- god! Can I talk about at the very beginning? There's the like when they when they jump off the sides and then they have to like get off their packs. Yeah. And then the one guy just doesn't get his pack off and just drowns, drowns immediately. And I was like, uh. Yeah. There were several moments yeah. where I audibly was like, uh. I, I can tell you that, yeah. So the, the actors who were doing that were wearing like wetsuits underneath. Another factual inaccuracy there's guys who get shot underwater. Bullets. It cannot happen. Mythbusters. Mythbusted. Yeah. Power of a bullet diminishes significantly once it hits water, it slows down so quickly that it's very difficult for it to. Actually, unless you're like, like foot underneath at the water. surface, yeah, it like it does not take a lot of distance for a bolt to stop underwater. A grenade, however, will fuck you up. Y- yes, that's also another Mythbusters episode, right? Yeah, yeah. But hey, I also told Mariah this. I'm pretty sure it was Bill Paxton was considered for Hanks's role as well, but he had water phobia, and oh. so when he read the script, he had to be like doing the D-Day beach. He's like, mm, no, won't do it. Yeah, motherfuckers out here think they build different than drown on D-Day. I could have done it. I'm built different. <laughs> yeah. I could have saved Private Ryan all myself. As I was watching this, I was like, I could never. Uh, maybe if we have enough time, I'll get into. We'll do discussion at the end. Yeah, but... and like how this movie may or may not be pro-war, but yes, yep, that's a whole. Oh boy, we'll get there, buddy. But um, filming also moved to England, and okay, England, British people, I love you guys. What the hell's up with your naming? Like, <laughs> like they they moved filming to a place called Hatfield Aerodome, and. Hertfordshire. What Hertfordshire? is Hertfordshire? Hertfordshire. What is this place? Stop. What is with the shires in the Ferds? In the Ferdshires. <laughs> oh my goodness. 
anyways, they moved that uh, area for at the end of August because they were filming the ending battle scene, which is Ramel, which despite being less crazy, this actually required a lot more preparation because D-Day, they're on a beach getting shot and they really are just kind of pushing up. But Ramel had like very specific geography to it yeah. that they needed to plan out with the buildings. And again, setting up and resetting takes longer because you're not on a beach where you can just shovel sand. You got to like... Oh, put this building back up and change yeah. this, roll it, you know. So it was actually a little bit more complex in ways than the D-Day beach scene. Uh, but they built an entirely fake town. That whole thing was fake. It was about three blocks long, all fake made up. The river is fake. Okay. They dug a trench and they poured water in it. So that doesn't Damn. go anywhere. Um, so pretty impressive. Again, I think the production, the production designer won an Oscar for this because amazing production work here. Because they built... A yeah, ruined they city? Yeah. Built a ruined city. It was based off of like five significant French towns that were involved in Normandy stuff. It's not a real place. Ramel is not an actual town. Yeah. That's just fictional, completely made up. But, you know, he worked closely with his consultants and die to consider, you know, realistic combat staging and tactics and things. But there there are still silly things that happen. But anyways, filming finished September thirteenth, nineteen ninety seven, after about twelve weeks. They finished ahead of schedule, actually. So now we're on to the release. They finished ahead of schedule? They finished ahead of schedule. Again, Spielberg didn't plan. Just showed up, did it. So it made $482.3 million in the box office, which is pretty good. They How much? $482.3 million. That's a That's a profit. Yeah, that's pretty good. Domestic I could pay or... off my student loans uh, with that. I'm pretty sure that's just the whole box well, office. Okay. Yeah. They thought it wouldn't do well because it was very excessively violent. It has very long run time. Which it means does. you can't like show it that many times the longer it is. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Um, it was also, yeah. Well, just like well, oh, it's pure time wise. Just yeah, pure yeah, time. Yeah. yeah, like a theater can't show it as many, as much as other movies. Right. As we know, this came out to be a critical and commercial milestone uh, that has redefined the war genre. Yeah. Whippy. Uh, it was. I don't know why they thought this wouldn't do well. So let me give you some of the competitors. Parent Trap. Halloween H20. Yeah, like, I don't know. I thought yeah, it's this, got this movie was going to do well. Most of the criticism that this movie got was about the violence. There's a lot of people saying it was unnecessary and it was done purely for like entertainment, which Spielberg was rejecting, especially because he's like these, a lot of the bits and pieces of like seeing a guy looking for his arm and stuff, these were pulled from veterans accounts. Yeah. So it's like, I, I understand if, like, you make that criticism on, like, Tarantino because it's like, yeah, he's making it up. Th- these were based off of real things. And so to be like, this is just violence for violence sake. It's like, no, they're trying I feel to like, create a historical depiction of what happened. Yeah, and I so, feel like minimizing the violence minimizes how serious it was yeah. in a way. Didn't a lot of veterans have to, like, leave the... Yeah, so we'll, we'll get there. This yeah. movie won Best Director, Best Cinematography, Best Sound, Best Film, Best Effects... Best makeup, best score, best production design, like everything. Except it was nominated for Tom Hanks for best actor. Um, Roberto Benigni won for Life is Beautiful. Yeah, which, which is, he, I haven't seen it, but from what I'm understanding. Very also, his acceptance speech is iconic. Yeah, he gets so, up on the chairs and, uh, and runs the stage. Yeah. Yeah. So great. All right. Best picture. Didn't win best picture. Let's talk about this. Okay. What was nominated? Is this going to make me mad? Maybe. We had, what was nominated was We Had Life is Beautiful, which is about the Holocaust. Yeah. What was also nominated was The Thin Red Line, which is another World War II thing. Mm-hmm. What won 
was Shakespeare in Love with Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah. That beat out a uh, Private Ryan, Life is Beautiful, and The Thin Red Line. And this is uh, like one of the most controversial picks like in Oscars history. And one of the mostly believed reasons this happened was because the producer of Shakespeare in Love was Harvey Weinstein. And apparently he just like incessantly lobbied for this movie. Like just like pulled a bunch of strings and was really just sleazy about it and like Force this movie to win. That's basically. the Oscars, baby. So, wow, that's all made up. It's all fake. It's not anything important. Yeah. In closing, this movie was hailed for its historical accuracy overall. Um, it did have some inaccuracy and in in inconsistencies. I could talk all day about that. I didn't. I didn't want to cover that. I just covered little bits and pieces. But as you know, and as uh, you guys have probably heard, yeah, a lot of veterans had a difficult time with this movie. Um, a lot of mm-hmm. them would walk out of theaters or they said they had issues with the screening. It was very overwhelming. It was very interesting. I saw a news reel, like news footage where they're talking about this and they were refer- they referring to PTSD as shell shock in like 1998, which really? I, I didn't realize they did. But another, this is, <laughs> this is kind of sad. The VA, the Veteran Affairs Office, they set up a special phone line for veterans oh to call that had been like triggered or had PTSD flashbacks from this movie. Jesus Christ. Which is sad. But um, that brings us to the end. And we can now enter in our discussions of the movie. Or what I you mean, guys I, I always knew this movie was going to have like a crazy production just because of the scope of it. Any war movie is going to have a particularly uh, robust production just by like what it's covering and it has to have yeah guns and explosions and all this and that and mm. you know if you are a good director you're gonna do it for real z's i don't think there's a whole lot to be said on like that that isn't just beating a drum of this movie is good watch the movie yeah yeah no i get it there okay i guess we'll get into it you know there is a like on Full Metal Jacket, we talked about the concept of like anti-war movies and pro-war movies and blah, blah, blah. And this one, doing the research on it, I find kind of confusing, complicated. It's not an anti-war movie. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think, so. think it's an anti-war movie. I don't movie. think it's anti-war. I don't necessarily think it's a pro-war movie. It does have very strong patriotism and kind of showing the no- nobility and heroism. But I don't think it's necessarily promoting war. Like, well, the whole thing is that they're on a FUBAR mission. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that they are they're battling with the, the command of the military and the orders and there's an opportunity for it to become kind of anti-war if they were to sort of reject the orders. Which one the of fighting, them almost does after the medic dies. He's he almost, like I'm done with this. This is stupid. Yeah, he almost does, but you know, they accept they accept the necessity of war. It's interesting that they accept the war as necessary as something needs to happen, but saving private Ryan, they don't buy into being like you know, the the glory of Saving Private Ryan. They reject that part, but they mm-hmm. accept war. Thing. So it's like kind of confusing. It's not anti-war, but it's not like pro-glory it's, war. But it's also, yeah, they think the mission is FUBAR, but in the eyes of certainly the mother and a lot of people watching it, trying to save a man who has lost all his brothers is a very noble thing to do. Mm. You know, it it is morally the right thing to do 
what makes this movie interesting and what Band of Brothers, I think, does better because this movie is very much based on like historical accounts. It, there is this this fictional thread through it, but it, a lot of what happens and what they say and things they see are based on like historical actual things that happened. You do kind of get moral ambiguity because that's just how it happened. Like, so one thing, I don't know, there's no way for you to know this, but those soldiers at the beginning when they're holding their arms up and they're speaking and then they shoot them and then they make fun of them, those soldiers are speaking Czech. And they're, I saw, subtitles that said they and they're saying, I'm not German, I'm not German, I'm Czech, I haven't killed anybody. And then they shoot them and they make fun of them. So we get this moment of depicting American soldiers as like kind of bad and like messed yeah. up. So we get sort of this, some of this moral grayness. So it, I think the fact that it's very confusing, it's one way and it's this way, lends truth to a sort of objectivity to the war. But there is still a subjectivity to the sort of glory of it. But the average viewer watching the movie theater, the check, yeah, the, they're not going to get it. The check thing is a really weird detail. And that's what I was like, I wish they, I mean, I don't know how else you would do it. I, but, but again, I'm like, I guess that's how it would happen, though. Yeah. Is you wouldn't know and you wouldn't know what they're saying and you'd shoot them. So, like, we know as much as they know. So, like, that's such a weird detail, but it's a very important detail. Oh, yeah. So, and then also thinking about Upham, the coward not acting and his friends dying again that's like a very objective thing that happens with soldiers you know that's that's something that happens i wish i saw and like i said band of brothers does this great because band of brothers is a complete historical retelling it is not a fictional account they don't make up stories they don't make up characters it's all actual people and so you see more of that where it's like here's a guy who accidentally shot his friend because he couldn't identify him quick enough you know or here's a guy who shot himself in the leg and he died or Here's a guy who made friends with a German soldier and then they were buds and then the German got executed. And it's just like, it's very morally great right? and it's very objective. And I wish I saw more of that in this movie. Yeah. Um, you talked about Upham a little bit and I want yes. to yeah, hold on to that. Yeah, a huge thing to talk about. Because, cause, cause like on one hand, I'm like, I, I don't know how I would be in that environment. I can tell you right now, I probably would not handle it no, well I, at all. I'd be a coward It's also too. important but, to note that he had not killed anyone. Yeah. At that point, he when, had he's, when he's hiding, held a rifle. he had barely he had held a rifle, he had barely shot a rifle. He has not taken a human life. But I think I think his cowardice is very selfish because he knows that his inaction yeah. could oh, be causing yeah. a death, and it does. Um, he could have saved Mellish. Is it Mel? Yes, I think it's Mellish. Mellish. Yep, it's Mellish. Um, and then the fact that he just lets the German go down the stairs, even like he yeah. he knows what just happened in there. Yeah. And he still doesn't do anything, mm-hmm. and and I'm like, yeah, again, <sighs> the man is is actually stricken to stone with fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's I think it's commenting on like war makes you do horrible things, and this here's somebody who's not ready to make that first step yes. yet. Yeah, the point um, that Spielberg said was Upham is supposed to be like an epitome of civilian. A regular civilian is going to have a really hard time killing someone and he has not overcome that hurdle yet um but also pivoting away from up for just a second one of the things i think about this movie that makes it definitely not pro-war mm. is that for, i mean it shows that aspect i think up is a very good example of that but also with captain miller when he reveals that he's like a teacher and he's yeah. like you would never guess it and basically like this war has turned me into a different person mm-hmm. that i hope my wife recognizes me when i come home that, I think, is a very good little speech that he gives. I mean, stop the fighting, but also just I think that highlights the fact that like war just absolutely changes yes, you. That... And they're joking about dog tags. 
and they're going through them and making jokes and like don't even notice that the airborne is walking by mm-hmm. and it's only when the medic comes by and is like what the fuck guys um so it like really desensitizes them to become people that their families are going to have a hard time recognizing if they get back yeah so Hanks and Upham are the most significant characters in this whole thing. Yeah, one of the biggest things Spielberg was focusing on was the transformative power of war. And so Hanks is someone who's like kind of at the end of that arc. War has changed him. He's become a kind of different man. And then Upham is beginning that arc. Yeah. And so that's kind of the point of their their characters and Upham's cowardice, per se, is seeing how war is changing these people who you would have never thought would be capable of these things in order to survive, in order to keep your friends alive. That's what you have to do and who you have to become. And the the idea of coward to killer isn't unique. We, we no. see it in Fury. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, you see it in other movies. I think if they had continued his arc, you would see him become the grizzled, wise person that Tom Hanks was. Yeah. And I think that is pro-war. Mm-hmm. The same way you see it in Fury, uh, the guy's like a coward. He doesn't want to kill anyone. And by the end, he's mowing down Germans. Yeah. The fact that you can go into this so and cowardly. I would say then, naive. Yeah. Yeah. And become a war hero. Mm-hmm. That's appealing to men. That, like I said, I think, I think the reason this movie comes off as like kind of pro-war and where this sentimentality comes from is the fact that they work so closely with veterans and they wanted to honor the veterans that they worked with and were talking to and interviewing and doing all this for. And so they wanted to honor them and they didn't want to make a movie that made them look bad or things, right. you know, and they were like, these are the guys who fought for our lives. And D-Day was the biggest military operation ever conducted, you know, like they wanted to pay tribute to them essentially. And I think that's where it comes off as like very patriotic and like kind of pro-war I will say it's very hard to make an anti-war film when the enemy is Nazis. Yes, uh, truly is. Yes and no. I think, I mean, this is something Band of Brothers does that I like is, I got to be real careful with my words here. Um, A lot of, especially towards the end of the war, a lot of the Nazi soldiers were not like evil. They were being drafted and conscripted like, any other war yeah, and just so like they a, weren't at, people at that point it's a really wanted to do army. it and i mean that's what was good about in the beginning you know they find the hitler youth knife they'd be like like kids are fighting this to an extent i feel like a lot of war movies just kind of like overlook a lot of them didn't want to be doing this or even with the czech guys in this movie they're like they weren't even german they were captured prisoners and forced to yeah. fight in the in the military or like, in the band of brothers when you hear about the guy who was american but he yeah. had family in germany yeah yeah and band of brothers it talks about a guy who lived in Oregon even um and he had family in Germany he was like oh it's like the calling like it's like my heritage like I need to go fight like it's what we do ha it's gonna be an adventure and then you know he gets executed by American forces it's a lot more gray than I think a lot of media depicts World War II and like the Nazis but yes it, it can be tricky um I want to change topic slash hop back just a second mm-hmm. um about the conversations and the scenes between Captain Miller and Upham just because I thought those were some of the best. I think um, Hanks and I don't know the actor's name who plays Upham. I think they bounced off of each other perfectly. Yes. From the very first interaction where Upham is like, oh, can I bring my typewriter? And he's fumbling everything and he's knocking shit over. And Hanks just looks bemused. And then 
they walk off together to when they have their conversation in the church at night, like their chemistry was incredible. Oh, yeah. And I think those were some of my best, like not my best, some of my favorite uh, moments of the film. I completely agree. When we're watching it, we're both like, whoa. Is there anything else we want to talk about? I want to talk about the beef that I have with this movie. Yes. I'm curious. Does that still stand? Uh, Yes, but no. Okay, so the the problem I have with this movie, and it's just like the story standpoint, it's just because I don't like the fact that Tom Hanks dies at the end. The fact mm. that he like sacrifices himself and and just as backup arrives, that pisses me off to no end. That's war, baby. I, yeah, and and it works because it's war, and that's what happens. It makes me mad. Very. I will akin. say I forgot about Upham's uh, inaction. Yeah. I think that pissed me off more this time. Yeah, but it still is. <laughs> And, and Tom Hanks is dying as like the hundred first are like finally helping, and I'm like, if he had waited one minute, he yeah. would have made it back to his wife. And then it's, just, <sighs> but I mean, yeah, you know, first of all, it's got to be like the bittersweet ending, and you know, he gave his life all for the, you, yeah, you know, just doesn't mean I have to like it. Okay, does Private Ryan end up doing anything worthwhile with his life? Yeah, he had he kids. asks his wife yeah. if he was a good man. That is Tom Hanks' last words being like, earn this. That is a horrible thing to do <laughs> yeah. that, that man. Oh, my God. As if God. he wasn't already well aware that he owes his life to these eight men to yeah. tell him, be like, earn this. That would haunt you. Yeah. That's terrible. I think that, I think that's another thing that just like, yeah, pisses me off is that. I mean, I guess maybe it's realistic because Hanks is dying and he's like, I'm not going to see my wife again. Like screw you like i hope this was worth it oh oh I've, I've remembered another thing i wanted to talk about real quick um in that moment of kind of quiet in Ramel before the final uh battle happens mm-hmm. when miller is sitting and talking with ryan damon and yeah. um then uh ryan's like i can't remember my brother's faces mm-hmm. and hanks is like oh you gotta think about it in a context and he's talking about his wife gardening in the in the backyard as he's in his hammock and then Ryan goes on this like two minute speech about the last night he was with his brothers before they were drafted. And that just felt like a scene directly out of Goodwill hunting. Yeah. It was like the, his delivery, the way he was laughing. And then the moment of like solemnity at the end, I was like, what the, huh? And, then, yeah. and, and then I hated that. His brothers start farting and he thinks it's so funny and cute. Mm. But right. I did like when uh, Ryan was like, oh, tell me about your wife in the garden. He goes, no, I think I'll just keep no. that for me. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, but that was good. Then he died. I don't know why Ryan had to do that speech about his brother's, like, yeah. I, yeah, I anyway. agree. That, I didn't like that speech per se. Yeah. Good movie. Anyway, just decided not to end that That's one. probably it. Oh, my God. Yeah. Any any last bits of trivia or is that all? Uh, I also just kind of want to sound out, shout out the sound design for a moment. It was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they won, so, like, they've been recognized, but, like, specifically in that last battle scene when the tanks are showing up and you hear them just sort of rumbling and creaking coming in as they're all trying to get ready and set up and prepared for everything. That was another thing where veterans watching were like, you got the sound of the tanks like perfect. You know, terrifying to hear the tiger tanks coming in. Well, maybe they should just use the planes more. That's what happens in Jarhead. They're like, oh, we're going to go fight the war. And they're like, planes did it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Anyways. Vietnam. Vietnam. That was another thing about, I think, why this movie performed so well when it came out is because Vietnam happened and there was a lot of Vietnam anti-war movies. And then this movie came out and people like 
wanted to feel good about war and like their veterans oh, again. So yeah. they're like, like I feel good about myself and like these guys. And World War Two was the good war. And like this movie did make me think. Okay, what what are the wars that you know you could say war the good ones? <laughs> Fight for independence, maybe. If you don't like British people, um, I, yeah. Depending on how they went, I'd say a lot of the independence wars. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they were just so dang evil. Yeah, it's it's, <laughs> it's Nazis. Like you gotta. If, if it weren't if it weren't for that, if they weren't for the literally trying to conquer the world part, <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe there would have been a little bit more nuance. Yeah. But we should probably wrap it up there. That's yeah, all yeah. I got. Um. Yeah. Great movie. Watch it. Production's great. Spielberg's directing is phenomenal. Performances are good. And I didn't really say this, but yeah, this like redefined the way people approached war movies. Specifically yeah. with like the shaky cam is something that's just a staple now oh, yeah. and it's yeah. done all the time. A lot of the desaturated look people would do with war movies. So like this was a huge milestone in war film and kind of combining, you know, the war film where it's like, look how bad it is, but also their heroes kind of thing. Because before it was a little more polarized where it's like, look at these great heroes fighting war or look how bad war is. And this one was like kind of oddly mixed. Should we rate it? Yeah. Seven, what would you rate it? Um, I'm going to give it, I don't know, nine men looking for their arms out of 10. That was the one I was going to use. Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> All right. Miles, what about you? This is a damn near pivotal war movie. Nine radio operators with concaved faces yeah. out of 10. Um, so I'm just going to keep it pretty succinct. I'm going to give it nine steamboat willies toot toot out of toot, ten. Toot. Nine toots. <laughs> um, yeah, it's good. Love it's solid. <laughs> All right. We are, we're, we're going to take a real left turn from what we covered today. We do oh, a lot. Oh, I don't know. There. She kept it a secret from me. Um, it's for me. We're going to, yeah, uh, we are going to be covering the Grand Budapest Hotel. No, oh. I've never seen it. Uh, really? Yeah. Oh, great. I just, I, think, I wonder. I swear I just saw something about like the making of I've been wanting to see movie. it too. Yeah, I think maybe watching Asteroid City kind of inspired me, but yeah. I wanted to do something a little bit more recent and I was like, we haven't done any Wes Anderson movies, so I thought that one would be quite fun. Nice. Should be fun. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, I think we're all done here. So yeah. as always, you can find us on social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram at the takes it took. If you have anything you want to email us, any corrections, comments suggestions for movies you'd like us to cover in the future you can mm -hmm. do so at the takes it took at gmail.com but yeah until our next episode stay safe have fun watch movies and don't lose your limbs goodbye bye bye earn this bye don't lose your limbs <laughs> don't lose your head <laughs>